Tonight, if you turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, as we continue a series that is the creation account, six literal days in which God accomplishes what the world says can't happen. We're forced to make a choice in our lives as to who we're going to believe. Are we going to believe God and his word? Or are we going to believe secular humanists whose agenda is to attempt to come up with a reasoning for why everything is without God? I myself believe there is a magnificent creator who created the entire universe And he did so in six literal days. That creates problems for scientists. But only because they choose their starting point. And I want to refer back to our first study. In the beginning, God. If you start with in the beginning, God. Then the creation account in your Bible is not hard to believe. If you start in the beginning, a singularity, a ball of all of the matter of the universe, so small that it's invisible, that existed someplace in what we call our known universe, some 13.7 to 13.9 billion years ago, and that exploded, and that chaos produced everything in the universe that we can now see, in its functioning maturity, then you have to explain that through natural processes. And while the Bible is not a science book, it gives us a way for us to understand the world that we see, the universe that we see, and the physical processes that are in play right now. We have no way of knowing what happened in the past, and so everyone's understanding of that cannot be subjected to the scientific method. In other words, it cannot be a theory that is then experimented upon, that experiment repeated, and the results of those experiments verified. Everyone, no matter what they believe about the origins of the universe, believe those things, not based on objective evidence, but upon a theory that they believe explains what they now see. Very important for us to acknowledge that, because those who hold a different view, that there is no God, go to ends that are insurmountable to the average human mind to explain God out of the equation. For us, it becomes a simple understanding of the things that we do see and can explain. And so I pray tonight as we add the second of our creation series, the power of the Holy Spirit in creation, that we'll begin to see how this all plays out. And I hope to keep the science to a level that most people can understand it. For some of you, it may go a little bit higher than you wish to go. For others of you, you may wish me to go a little bit deeper, but the intent here is to not to turn this into a science lecture, but to keep it to the biblical account. And what God is doing here 
as he begins to explain to us how the universe and all that we see came about. And as we do so, we must ask for the Holy Spirit, who is going to be the chief energizer now of the creation, to speak into our lives so that we can have understanding of the things that we need to know. And so would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this time tonight. And we pray that your spirit would be present in great power. Lord, anointing what you want to say to your people as we study your word. We bless your name. We we believe what your word plainly declares. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that earth originally, as verse 2 is going to go on and tell us, was without form and void. It was uninhabited. It didn't have the shape it now has. But you, by the Spirit, moved on what you created, space and time and matter, to create the universe as we know it. And so, Lord, we bless you. We ask now that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 2 and 3 here in Genesis 1. And the earth was without form. Very insightful words in the original language, the Hebrew, and we're going to pull these apart as we go through them because God is saying things very specific to us. We read without form and we say, well, it could be like modeling clay and it hasn't been squished. We see all kinds of various things that could be what God's trying to tell us, but he's being very specific, using very exacting language, And we'll break this down as we begin to pull through this creation account. And void. In other words, it's not yet populated. The universe as we know it consists of a triunity. That triunity is space itself. It is time and matter. That's the basic physics of the universe. Added to that is energy. The entire universe as we know it consists of that triunity that is energized. It's energized in many different ways, electromagnetically, nuclear, solar, what we would call heat energy, all kinds of wave energy. There are things that energize the universe. But up to this point, this universe has not yet been energized. And so we get to that place tonight, and it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And darkness was on the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3, which really will be the beginning of the focus for next week. And God said, the first account of God speaking in Scripture, and God said, let there be light, and light was, or it really is rendered in the Hebrew, and light be. And so God now is giving us a, a, a glimpse into what happened in what we would call the primordial universe. In other words, the very early beginning stages of what God has now brought into existence from nothing. And so as you think on those things, one of the questions that immediately comes to mind uh, for all of us is, when did this happen? And this is where the ridicule normally comes for those of us who believe that God created the universe and everything in it. We could actually choose to ridicule the old age universe, if you will, because there still is not enough time 
for all that we see in the universe today to have evolved from natural processes. So there's ridicule really to throw on both sides. But the main ridicule for those of us that believe that God simply in six days created the entire universe by caveat, he just simply spoke it into existence, is that there isn't enough time. And the reason that there isn't enough time isn't because there is not an explanation for it, but because the result of believing the explanation is there has to be a God. And that's the issue. Because if you believe there is a God, then you're responsible to that God who's creator. That means man is no longer the center of the universe that you do not control your own destiny. In fact, there is a God who dwells outside of space and time, and one day we will all answer to him. And so the issue is not, is there evidence one way or another, because there is evidence that people would look at and say, this is the reason I believe this. But the results of believing the evidence one way or another. If you believe there's no God, then you can really live however you want. If you believe there is a God then you should be living your life the way he desires for you. And so when did this all happen? It's a vital question, the significance of this event that takes place between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 2. And I want to tell you, point blank, it cannot be settled. The question cannot be answered in a definitive way because the information necessary to do so is not with us. God doesn't, there's no verse in here that says 6,457 years ago, I created a universe, or 10,000 years ago, I created a universe, or 13.7 billion years ago, I created a universe. That information doesn't exist. So we're stuck trying to discern these things from two principal ways. One is the actual written record that God has given us, and the other is the natural universe as we know it today, given the circumstances that we have today, but not necessarily the information having been tampered with. Because we know, because our Bible says, that the information that we have on this planet was tampered with about 4,000 years ago. It's called Noah's Flood. So everything that we see was affected, as we saw in our first study, by that global cataclysm, and so the information that is discernible from what we have today is not from the original creation, it is from after Noah's flood. The reason that this is important is anytime you look at any kind of information, you have to make some assumptions. And if your basic assumption is everything that is happening today has always happened as it is happening today, and it will continue to happen until a point in time when it ceases to exist, that's called uniformitarianism. Uniform processes over long periods of time then could have created everything that we see. That's the assumption. The other is that information got tampered with by God himself. And so the things that we can now look at, decay processes of radioactive materials, depositation of sediments, erosion, all of those things that we would look at today and say, well, we know there's this much patina on this rock. There's this much glacial scouring on this rock. There is this much eroded material from this particular piece of rock. There are these many atoms existing of carbon-14 that are now left 
in this material that has some form of carbon in it, and because of that, it's X number of years old. But if you believe that there was a cataclysmic event that happened that destroyed all of the evidence that previously existed and re-altered and altered all of that evidence to now give you a conclusion that is completely false based on your original premise, which is these things have always been as they are and they have continued until now. Your Bible says that the process has been altered. So when did creation happen? There's an awful lot of men who've labored diligently for very long periods of time trying to answer that question. Let me give you some reasons why there are difficulties that hinder this work. There is, there is some uncertainty in the original manuscripts. There are some things that are not discernible from the original manuscripts of what we call the first five books of Moses, very specifically this book, the book of Genesis. And so there is some information that is contained within the book of Genesis that you could move a verb one way or another. You could move a noun one way or another. You could put an extra conjunction in there. And depending on which Masoretic, the Septuagint, the Samaritan text, if you took those texts, you might come up with something that's slightly different. So that eliminates an absolute view based on the text. There's also uncertainty based on the ancient calendar. Was it like ours today, the Gregorian calendar that has 365 days except for every seven years and we now have an extra day, right? Was it the Jewish calendar? Was it the Babylonian calendar? We don't know. We're not told. So there could be some differences in the dates used. There's also a possibility that there are missing generations, very specifically in the Genesis account in chapter 5, And then in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, we are not certain, but we are certain enough that there can't be that many missing generations that at the very, very most, you might be able to squeeze about 5,000 years worth of generations in and still keep the biblical account intact, depending on the average age of a human being. So there's a little bit of a difficulty of discerning the exact age there. There are some confusing and seemingly contradictory, and the reason I use the word seemingly is because they're not contradictory if you go with the premise that all of the records of the kings in the book of Judges, First and Second Samuel, the, the books, book of Kings itself, if you look at that not as a historical chronology, but rather as a record of what the kings were doing, then that also could give you a little bit of a leeway for some time to be in there. You also have the very unsatisfactory state of discerning the history of ancient peoples. We have several of them. You all know most of them. We know that there's ancient China. Amen? We know that there's ancient Babylonia. There's ancient Persia. There are certainly the ancient Egyptians. Strangely and oddly enough, not one of those people groups exists past about 4,000 years B.C., So there is no oral or written record of any people on the face of the earth save those larger civilizations which have left us a record. So you have all kinds of people that are wandering around say, well, we know people lived in these caves 10,000 years ago, or we have these bones that exist in the Olduvai Gorge in, in, 
Tanzania and we've got a, you know, a single bone over here and a bone over there. If there were millions of people on the face of the earth that all supposedly lived somewhere around one and a half million years ago, you would think there'd be more than two skeletons left on the planet. And yet there's supposed to be this long history of life and death. Whole people groups that lived on little tiny islands. That somehow there was only nine of them. Let me help you understand this. They lived in an ideal environment with plenty of food and they ran around naked. There's going to be a whole lot of people. Those are human beings we're talking about. And yet, very, very, very sparse skeletal evidence that cannot be accurately dated. So the fact of the matter is, the best records that we have are the Bible. Actually tells us what happened, at least for the last roughly six and a half thousand years. And so we have some record there. There's a biblical data set that we can look at. And whenever you're talking about information, a data set is just simply that statistical data that you can analyze and come to some conclusion from it. In Genesis chapter 1, you have the amount of time from the creation of the universe to the creation of man. That's a fairly strong data set. So this is when I created the universe. Here's when the first man came on the face of the earth. So we, we have that in view. Genesis 5, lots of chronolo- chronological data from the time of the first man, Adam, to the flood, the flood of Noah. Most of you already know the answer to this question. When we get to that flood, how many people survived after the flood on the ark? Exactly eight, right? So if you had a whole bunch before the flood, you now have eight. It is going to take you a fairly long time to repopulate the earth after that if you start with eight people whom are family. So we have that record. Genesis 11 summarizes the chronology from the flood to Abraham, the starting of the Hebrew nation. It it includes the, the diaspora of all of the nations. God looks at the world, sees this incredible problem, says, look, if I leave them alone, the face of the earth is evil continually, so I'm going to spread them out. I'm going to confuse their language. And so you have a central people group that is now being dispersed and, and what we now know as the nations, the ethnos, are born. So we have that information. We also have the historical books of the captivity, which, by the way, contain hundreds of thousands of pieces of extra-biblical evidence outside of the Bible evidence. Babylonians, Sumerians, Persians, Medes, Greeks, Romans, all recorded that period of history that we would call about 2,000 B.C. and this direction. You also have the history of the Egyptian empire, fairly well documented. All of them bear witness to the fact that there were people in what we call the Middle East who were known as the Hebrews. And so that we have very solid within the books, the historical books that contain the captivity. Ezra, Nehemiah. And then you have the prophetic chronology, the the restoration of the captivity as the people are brought back from Babylonian captivity specifically, resettle in the land. That history is excruciatingly accurate. And so we know, in essence, the last about 3,500 years of history. The 2,000 that we would call A.D. or after the common era, if if you must, 
or BCE, before the Common Era. We have a couple thousand years of history, probably 1,500 very accurately. So you have about 3,500 years of, of actual history since the flood that's excruciatingly well documented. But beyond that, not so much. So there is some biblical data information that you can look at. When did this stuff happen? The best chronology that we have came from a man named James Usher. And while I will tell you straight up, right here, right now, there's all kinds of people who say, oh, he was crazy, he, he was a loon, and the moment you mention his name in scientific circles, they're all like, oh, I can't believe you believe that stuff, that's what you're going to get. But the fact of the matter is, is no lesser scientist than Sir Isaac Newton believed James Usher's chronology verbatim. I don't think Isaac Newton was exactly a dummy. Any of you that ever studied physics, it's Newtonian physics. The father of that scientific discipline believed that the world was created roughly 6,500 years ago. So as you look at these chronologies, you look at how people derive the information, the criticism that's out there is not really because of the information. The criticism is because of the conclusion one must make if you believe the information. And that's the important part for us. Do you believe that God is a God of miracles? Do you believe that God can do things that we can't explain? Because the Bible plainly says he can, by the way. His ways are above our ways. They're beyond our finding out. He doesn't tell us everything. And yet people insist that we have to be able to know. No, we don't have to be able to know. So anyone that tells you, I know the universe is 13.7 to 13.9 billion years old, they're doing so based on a premise that the other explanation is unacceptable to them. That's the main reason they believe that. The science that goes along with it is birthed out of the conclusion that there is no God. As you think on those things, I know this is difficult to wrap your mind around, but every single thing that we believe has to be factored through the word of God. As Christians, if you believe this for your salvation eternally, how can you deny this as the reason that we even exist in the first place? Because I'll tell you what, my eternity is much more important to me than knowing when it was that the universe came into existence. But the same Bible that says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God lest any of us should boast, says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So if you choose to believe in salvation by grace through faith, I would suggest to you it's disingenuous for you to not believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So you've got to be careful which parts of the Bible you choose not to believe. You either believe it or you don't believe it. So be very careful about what you believe about how you got here. I believe that God created everything that we see. As you look at the chronologies in the Bible, it becomes very, very, very clear to me that there is a possibility that maybe the biblical data in itself is not complete. There is room for the world that we live on to be perhaps as much as 10,000 years old, but absolutely no more than that.
Interestingly enough, if you look at the actual raw science and what we now know about radioactive dating methods, we're going to find that that is a very reasonable effect because every method of dating the creation has its flaws. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you choose. Doesn't matter who you pick. It doesn't matter what you do. You, you see, what you believe if you're a evolutionist is that we actually evolved from apes about three million years ago. And for the first one and a half million years ago to roughly our time, uh, we were really mostly humanoids. What, what would be called ancient humans, paleo-humans. But before that, we were mostly monkeys. So during, some of us are still mostly monkeys. But, but during that period of time, that one and a half million years, we slowly transitioned literally from walking on all fours, putting our knuckles on the ground, not having opposable thumbs, to walking upright and being who we are. And yet, Strangely enough, there's no fossil evidence that that ever occurred. There is not a single complete skeleton of any pre-human. There's all kinds of little bits and pieces that are purported to be pre-human. In other words, kind of part monkey and part human. The greatest of which was a total farce, Lucy now proven to be an accumulation of nothing more than a whole bunch of bones, including some of them that ultimately were found to be from a pig. So if, in fact, humans have been on this earth in some form for at least one and a half million years, I'd like to know where all their fossils are. Nobody can find them. And yet we have hundreds of of thousands and millions of dinosaur fossils that are supposedly 485 million years old. Can someone tell me why the older fossils are still here but the younger fossils are not? That's a little bit of a problem for me. Because if they were around, then they should be very prolific within the fossil record and yet they're nearly non-existent. That's a problem. Because the most complex of all of the life forms on the planet Earth is us. We would have done everything to avoid extinction. We would have moved from place to place to place to try and figure out a way to get to somewhere we could survive. And yet, somehow, we didn't manage to do it but dumb dinosaurs did. And by the way, when you talk about, how many of you have been to the La Brea Tar Pits? Anybody know how old those fossils are that are in the La Brea Tar Pits? Guess what? They're roughly about 10,000 years old. Vast majority of them. And they're primor- primarily saber-toothed cats, mastodons, lots of rabbits, a few dogs. Interestingly enough, those are the same ones that we find frozen in the Arctic. A little bit of a genetic variation. So we now have genetic material that also is less than 10,000 years old from mastodons and woolly mammoths 
and all of those kinds of things. So as you think on the earth, everybody just jumps to the conclusion we must have been here for millions and millions and millions of years. And yet there is zero evidence that that's actually true. You have in the midst of this, you have what I call the flood factor. Because you have this massive thing that happens to the entire world. How many of you have traveled to the Grand Canyon? We'll do a little bit more on this when we get to Noah's flood. You've been to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the rim and you look at all of the layers of the Kaibab sandstone and you, you just you look across, especially from the south rim to the north rim, and you can see all of these layers of sedimentation. And it was believed for a couple of hundred years that that little tiny Colorado River somehow carved out that canyon. They now know that that's an absolute impossibility. There has not been enough time even if you had allowed for the earth to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 billion years old, there still would not be enough time for the canyon to be that deep and that wide simply by the erosion of a river. But what if the entire face of the earth was covered and that was the place where all of the water that covered North America exited and ended up into the sea? It'd be a different thing, wouldn't it? So those are the types of things that when you think about your Bible you think about additional information that secular scientists don't want to think on. So, well, we we can't really imagine that. And yet, we now know that a vast majority uh, of the world's great cultures all have some form of flood narrative. Some place between 240 and 271 flood narratives exist within the basic people groups of planet Earth. In other words, they believed that there was a global cataclysm, that global cataclysm was a flood, that flood encompassed the entire world as it was known at that time, and it destroyed, in essence, the world. When you fly over the center of the United States, it's very, very, very clear that a whole lot of water sat on top of the United States of America, and it drained out through a handful of places. It's now widely believed that most of what is now Montana and Colorado, the Colorado Plateau, uh, was actually a giant lake, a sea at some point in time, and it drained out, in essence, through the top of the Grand Canyon. And again, we'll look at all this when we get to Noah's flood. But some interesting things that people often don't think about. You, you see, if you believe the biblical narrative, and we are, we're doing a little bit of a preview, the biblical narrative would absolutely by necessity mean that we had to have had at some point in time both dinosaurs and man on the face of the earth at exactly the same time. Anybody know when we first found the first dinosaur fossils? Anybody in here? Let me tell you, it wasn't that long ago. It was about the mid-1600s the first dinosaur fossil is found. That's the mid-1600s. First dinosaur fossil is found. So what would happen, most of you are familiar with the Incas and the Mayans and the Aztecs, the Toltecs, all those people in South America and Central America. Everybody know those guys? If you've got, you know, if you've ever been to a Peruvian restaurant, you've seen Mayans. In the the nation of Peru, the Incans loved to decorate their tombs and they decorated them with rocks. In this case, this is a Peruvian burial stone and I don't know about you, but that looks a whole lot like an Allosaurus to me. Attacking some king what's-his-face, and there's the giant turtle dude here in the back. (laughs) Now, I don't know why they would do that if all the dinosaurs died out basically, uh, you could say safely, 165 to 185 million years ago, if you're a secular scientist. 
Many of them died out almost entirely during the Cambrian explosion. We have this giant proliferation of life at about 465 to 485, supposed million years ago. But that's an Incan, and that's an Allosaurus from about 500 B.C. Now, I don't know where they would have gotten that narrative unless somebody in their family had seen a very large lizard, which has never existed, as far as we know it, in South America. This next one I really love, because it's one of the flood narratives. Uh, That would be actually an Incan chieftain uh, riding on the back of a triceratops. And secular scientists dated this one to about 410 B.C., So for some reason, the Incans believed that dinosaurs and people existed at exactly the same time on the face of the earth, and in fact, they interacted together. Strangely enough, your Bible in the book of Job declares roughly the same thing. It talks about creatures that we can't explain. Behemoth, Leviathan. So before you get to that place of saying, well, you know, that's just craziness. People and dinosaurs. Ancient cultures that obviously we didn't discover dinosaurs until the mid-1600s, and yet an ancient culture had a rock carving of a triceratops and an allosaurus 2,000 years, basically, before we discovered dinosaurs. So I don't know whose info is correct, but I'm going with that one. You, You see, people say, well, you know, it's just crazy. That's nuts talking. Really? You see, they always default to the uniformitarian position and what everybody knows about, everybody's heard about, there's probably not one person in this room who hasn't heard of carbon-14 or C-14 dating. Because everyone will say, well, it was carbon-dated. Everybody heard that? Raise your hand. If you've heard of, ah, raise your hand. There you go, carbon-dating. You've heard of carbon-dating. It's like the end-all cure-all to absolutely everything. All you have to do is say it was carbon dated to X number of years old and it is taken as a fact. Here's the problem with carbon dating. And this is a little bit heady in the science. I'm going to try and keep it, you know, on the down low a little bit. But because most of you understand that what most people think of as carbon dating is a very simple process. Radioactive carbon or radioactive material in general decays to carbon, and as it decays, it does so at a very fixed rate in our day and time. And again, imagine that the world and everything on it was once washed over by a giant flood, but let's give them the fact that radioactive material decays at a very uh, slow rate, and once we discovered that, and that was only about 100 years ago, by the way, we, we all of a sudden were able to take things that are either igneous rock, which has a lot of carbon in it, or fossils, which is made almost entirely of carbon. And so you can look at the amount of decayed carbon byproduct, in other words, radioactive carbon, uh, based on what the Earth is being bombarded with today, and we know that rate because we can measure it. And they said, well, depending on how much of this daughter and parent isotope ratio is left, we can tell how old something is. Here's the problem with that. Because what is actually going on there is you're, you're measuring the ratio of carbon-14 atoms to carbon-12 atoms. In other words, how many of which is left. And depending on that ratio, it tells you how old that sample is. 
And so here's what happens in the world of geology. If you find a certain fossil and you date that fossil, that fossil now becomes what we call the index fossil to that layer of rock. So wherever you find that fossil, that's how old the rock is. But wait, it gets better. If you find that layer of rock, then any fossil in it must also be that old. In other words, it's circular reasoning. You can find one or the other, and whichever you find, that's how old the rock is. And so here's, here's what generally happens in our world today. About 30 years ago, we, we started using what's called an accelerator mass spectrometer, which is a very fancy uh, device that measures uh, cosmic rays or the noise that comes from outer space. And they began to measure these things, and they thought that based on what had previously been, been assumed, that they should find no sample on the face of the earth that contained one one-thousandth of one percent of the normal that you would find today of C-14 atoms. They had a really huge problem. They couldn't find a single sample on the face of the earth. They still have not found a single sample on the face of the earth that has less than two percent. Not one one-thousandth of a percent, but less than two percent. In other words, 100 times the value that they previously thought exists in every sample still left on the face of the earth. So their basic assumption was that the samples that were oldest were at least 90,000 years old and then measured by the rock layer. So however many rock layers, add your 90,000 years to it, that's how you would come up with 150, 200,000 years old. 2 million years old, 10 million years old, 450 million years old. Here's the problem. Now, they now know that the oldest sample that we can find on the face of the earth is around 10,000 years old. That's relatively new science. It's only the last 30 years. So it's not as cut and dry as everybody says. In other words, if one started with a pure amount of carbon-14, the size of the known universe, that little tiny speck that existed somewhere that exploded... There shouldn't be a single atom left of carbon-14 anywhere in the entire universe, and yet there is, and in much greater proliferation than should be there if the, if the universe is 13.7 to 9 billion years old. So don't let somebody tell you, well, we dated it with carbon-14, and it's this number of millions of years old, because the latest science says that's absolutely not correct but you won't find that published in any college textbook. You won't find it in a high school textbook. They just keep going with the old timeline that Charles Lyell set out uh, when, when he began doing geology tours of the Eastern Sierra. And so we now have ability to question whether those things are true or not, and we must question whether they're true or not. And so when you begin to use those values to date the old fossil record, you come up with dates that are thousands of years old as opposed to millions of years old. Who's right? You have a written record of what God said he did, and you have very faulty science, as brilliant as the mathematics is behind it. You have very faulty science that's now proven to be absolutely incorrect, and they're having to rethink the entire fossil record because of it. But nobody's printing a retraction 
Nobody's saying, well, we, you know, we kind of messed up and there shouldn't be any carbon-14 left anywhere on the planet according to how old the age of the universe supposedly is. But there is. And, and in large degree, we have the, 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 the things that we now look at, we say, man, why, why don't they tell us this? Well, why don't they tell us these things? Because you have to come to the conclusion that the universe is not as old as they say it is. It must be as old as they say it is in order for evolution to have even the slightest chance of being a reality. So if the universe isn't billions of years old, then there is not enough. Even if it is, there is not enough time for evolution to have happened. So there is a huge problem. Why am I telling you this? There is a huge problem with dating the universe. So you have the record of what God says he did, and you have faulty science saying it's something else. I would say it's reasonable to go with what God says. Amen? Now the next thing that we see is the power of the Holy Spirit in creation. As you look at these dating things, and remember, you can download these slides, and I've got some equations on there. You can look at them. You can run the numbers if you want. Uh, You're going to find out that what I've purported to you is absolutely accurate. Uh, But feel free to do it. If you come up with something else, let me know. But the power of the Holy Spirit in creation, because what you have now is, is people that try and cram billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And it is that that I want to look at in our remaining period of time. And the earth was out without form, notice verse 2, and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now remember that every word is important, because it was authored by the Holy Spirit, It was written down by men of old. It is God's record of what he said he did. So as we look at these things, it matters the order that these things are in. And you're going to see again, I want to draw your attention to it and keep thinking about it as we go through the creation account, the use of the conjunction and. So each thing is added to another thing. They are done so in order and they must remain in order for them to work. It's just like any type of a scientific equation, any type of a recipe, you know, you have to add, the ands matter. So don't look at it as a run-on sentence. God's not using poor grammar here. He's reminding you, I did this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and I did these things in this order. That's why those words are there. And the earth was, it says, very significant phrase, It's saying, look, here here is the earth, but it's not saying the planet earth. It's saying earth, as in Eretz. In other words, in the Hebrew language, it's talking about what we would call matter. It just simply says that matter exists. But it says that the earth is without form. What form is our world in today? Everybody knows, right? It's a sphere, isn't it? So if it was without form, could it have been some other shape other than the sphere? The answer is yes. So God simply creates matter. He says, look, I'm able to do this. I'm outside of space and time. And and he makes this, what we would call a a ball or a matter, a a ball of matter. What history is, is going to judge, ultimately, is the accuracy of what God said versus the accuracy of what people without God are trying to make us believe. Which is there's a natural explanation for why the planet Earth is round. Any of you that have ever experimented with backyard fireworks know that when you stick a firecracker inside of anything, it does not retain a round shape. 
Uh, if you put explosives underneath things, they, they have a tendency to not come out in any form of... A sphere is about the one thing that they won't turn into. You, you, you might get all kinds of ragged shapes. You may get, you know, things that look like elephants or whatever in the sky, but you will not get a sphere. Why? Because the sphere uniformly disperses the energy of an explosion. So if there is a sphere and it explodes, like a ball of matter, and it explodes, it's not going to turn into other spheres. It is going to turn into all kinds of ragged shapes and sizes. But God says the earth was without form and it was void. And the Hebrew here denotes it's going to undergo a state of change. In other words, what's going to happen is it is one thing and God's going to shape it into something else is, is the premise. And so he uses a very specific Hebrew phrase. It is tohu val vahu. And, and, and what it's really saying is that it, it was without any discernible shape and it was uninhabited. In other words, there is nothing there that you would call the, the, the planet Earth today. It would just simply matter. And when you get a can of silly putty, it's a can of silly putty, Amen. Until you make little dinosaurs out of it, it, it's without form. It's just a blob. It's the basic premise. God's working with matter as we know it, and he's simply going to form it. He's going to shape it. He's already made it all, but it is not in the shape that you see it today. He's going to do that now, uh, here in the beginning of the first day of creation. Furthermore, the power grid was not up and running yet. You, You see, there's a couple of things that have to exist for things to work. Generally, they have to have stored information, you have to have matter, and then they have to be energized. Every single-celled organism that exists in the universe, however many there are, but certainly on this planet, if you have a blue-green algae and it's sitting there in a glass of water uh, on a countertop, there are hundreds of thousands of pieces of technology inside that single blue-green algae. And every one of them has to have the ability to have energy both inputted and outputted. It needs to be able to self-diagnose. It needs to be able to self-replicate. It's got a boatload of information in it. What's missing in this matter that God has created, there's no information, there's no energy. And so it's just matter. God is now going to energize that, put the power grid to it. No stars, no planets, just the basic space-time matter continuum exists. And so he's going to form it now. And God will, will tell us that there's going to be light. This physical universe uh, is just now ready to be worked with, if you will. And it says here that there's a state of incompleteness. It doesn't say uh, that, it, that it doesn't have any shape. It doesn't have any form. It's just not done yet. It's kind of like you, haven't, you put something in the oven and it begins to rise and it's, it's a finished cake. In that sense, this is that same type of a principle. The basic components are there, but God's not done working with it. The same picture, by the way, is what God's doing here. You can find in Proverbs chapter 8. So if you want to mark that in your Bibles, uh, verses 24 and 27. Uh, we also found that Peter, remember in Second Peter chapter 3, says the, the earth was standing uh, in water and out of water. And he's talking about this, this face of the deep that now the Holy Spirit is hovering over. The Ruach Elohim, which is the picture that we now, that we now are going to see. The, the darkness that's there. And, and so the Holy Spirit is hovering over this, getting ready to work. And, and, and how, most of you probably know that light is a form of energy, right? 
disperses heat, does all kinds of things. But there are lots of different kinds of energy. And so the Holy Spirit is able to instantaneously impart all forms of energy into the creation. And God's going God's to now undertake that next step. The, the reference here to the formless condition is so that we realize it takes, if you're going to make something, you have to have energy, right? You also have to have information. You have to actually have something. There's got to be a plan. There's got to be a way for you to construct this thing. And so the Holy Spirit is that technology and is that energy. And it's about to get working. Notice it says move. The Holy Spirit moved over the face of the water. And this is an important, it's an important distinction here. Because the earth is without form and void, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word hovering there actually is a Hebrew word that is best translated vibrated. And for most of you, you, you probably know, you've been down to the beach, you know that waves have wave energy, right? They have a trough and they have a peak and as they move, they roll. The same is true for sound. The same is true for light. The same is true for electromagnetism. All forms of energy generally that we see that do some form of work here can travel in a wave pattern. And it says that the Holy Spirit, in essence, vibrated or caused to put into wave motion this thing that was now form, without form and void, and it's going to be energized. And so with the exception of the nuclear forces, which would have been inside of the matter itself, because matter isn't matter unless there's atomic particles and they're held together by nuclear energy, the Holy Spirit is now going to put all this in motion. And remember, it's very, very clear. The first law of thermodynamics states that you can't create energy. It can't be created, it can't be destroyed. So there has to be something outside of space and outside of time that is going to put this energy into it because the energy itself has to come from somewhere because the creation itself can't create it. And so it's got to come from outside of the creation. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. But there, as we, as we think about what the Holy Spirit is actually doing, the Holy Spirit moves over the face of these waters and, and the, the book of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 8 says that the, the compass was set on the face of the earth. How many of you know what a compass does in drafting? It causes an arc or a circle, doesn't it? Okay, the surface of the earth is, if you look at it on a two-dimensional plane, it's a circle, isn't it? It's actually a sphere in three dimensions. And so the Holy Spirit actually adds the shape of the earth to this ball of mass that now exists and says, okay, here's planet Earth, and then it's going to create the stars, going to create galaxies, going to take all of this matter and organize it uh, by hovering over it and energizing all of the matter that's now been created in the universe. So the power grid is the next thing to come online. All the molecules begin to move, all of the atoms begin to wiggle and do their thing, uh, and then... The, the, the amazing happens, the energizing action of the Holy Spirit and the activating power of the Word of God. God is going to speak these things into existence. He, he doesn't need natural processes to do that. If you begin with the premise there's no God, then you have to have a natural explanation. But if you believe in the premise that there is a God and that God is infinite, he can do anything at any time, anywhere, any place, then it makes absolute sense that he can simply speak these things into existence because he is able to do that. So as you think on, on what's going on here, the force of gravity is not yet functioning. The force of gravity is going to come into play. 
all of those things that we see uh, that, that cause, we get protected every day. You don't think about it. You're wandering around on planet Earth. The reason you don't die from radiation exposure is because of the electromagnetic waves that emanate from the two poles on our planet. And so all of that electromagnetic wave energy actually causes all of that bombardment of cosmic radiation that would normally kill us to bounce away. So all of these things, now the Holy Spirit's going to put in play. Your Bible doesn't tell us all of the details, but it tells us what's going on. Time, space, matter, now energy. It's exactly the universe that we see. That's what's going on around you every day. So here comes the power grid, the Ruach Elohim. The Spirit of God moves over the face of all of this this time, space, and matter that's been created. And when you think about the way this actually is going to work, the context determines always in Scripture the correct meaning. So we always look at the context. So what do we have? We, we have something that is without form and void, and it needs to, be, needs to be given a form and made useful. What's God in the business of doing? He's in the business of creating. He's in the business of making things useful. He's in the business of redeeming. That's, that's what he does. He has a creative force, creative energy. And he's now going to energize that through the Holy Spirit. The word moved here is the Hebrew word rachpah. And what it simply means, it's only used three times in the entire uh, Bible. And it means to flutter, to vibrate. And so he begins to move all these things. If you've ever worked with concrete... Uh, One of the things you have to do when you're working with concrete, if you want it to take a specific shape or a specific form, and you have a form, and that that form has been created out of normally out of plywood, and it could have all kinds of things, or maybe it's like a precast thing. If you have a fountain in your house, you have a piece of precast concrete, more than likely. But if it's not made well, what happens is you pour the concrete into it, and you don't vibrate it, and you don't shake it, and it doesn't take the proper form. And so it's got all kinds of holes and voids and cracks in it. So here you have the Spirit of God hovering or vibrating this creation and turning it into exactly what he wants it to be. In other words, if something's set in motion, there has to be a prime mover. If you take a marble and you set it on a tabletop, if you set it on the tabletop and you do not act on it, it will sit there for billions of years. But the moment you put it into motion, it now will continue in motion until forces act upon it to either deny it to go someplace or change its direction, or, or it, all of the energy that you imparted to it is taken out. Now imagine that you have infinite amount of energy, which the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit can energize the entire creation and keep it going indefinitely for as long as the Holy Spirit wants the energy uh, to be dispersed that way. So light waves and heat waves and sound waves, all those things begin to flood into the creation. The results of that, as the, as the power comes into the universe, the laws of thermodynamics come into play. So those things which we would say now could start to decay begin uh, to have the possibility of doing that. And, and so the Spirit acts on all these things. And each one of these processes is necessary for the world and the universe that we live in to actually function. If you talk to a physicist and you say, okay, what are the basic components of the universe? They're going to tell you time, matter, and energy, along with space. You now have time, matter, energy, along with space. That's what you've got. So God's word is very accurate. 
tells us exactly what exists in our universe. He's not telling us how he did everything specifically, but he's telling you what he did. And so now he begins to, to say to us, let's put some light on this whole subject. And so he says, finally, let there be light. And the Spirit of God moved. The Word of God speaks. And I want you to see all three persons of the Godhead are at work in, in these short three verses already. So the Spirit of God moves in Genesis 1, uh, 1 and 2. And then the Word of God speaks in Genesis 1, 3. And because light was not created, because we know that Jesus is the light. Amen? That absolutely fits the physical model of our universe, because light can't be created either. So if light exists anywhere in the universe, it has to have always existed. It could never have been created. Because it's a function of energy. And energy can't be created or destroyed. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he meant that. And interestingly enough, in the New Jerusalem, guess who's going to light it? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why? We'll get to that next week. God himself dwells in light. Jesus is the light. So the Father being the source of all these things, the Spirit being the energizer of all things, the Word being the revealer of all things. And so God speaks for the first time in all of Scripture, and he's going to continue speaking until we have a fully functioning world to live on and people on it. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray together. Worship team, I think, is coming back up. We're going to close in song, have some pastors come forward. They'll be available to answer questions if you have those. But God is good. And, and he is who he says he is. And I want to really strongly encourage you to remember that. I've watched way too many Christians walk away from the faith because they believe that God is an, is an unnecessary uh, factor in all of this because man has somehow figured out how to explain everything that we see without him. No, they have not. No, we have not. We still desperately need God. And without him, you can't explain a thing that exists in the universe. You can throw out lots of theories, but you can't get to the specifics. And so the specifics that I believe is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless us with all wisdom and knowledge, discernment. Help us to know the power of your word to change and transform. God, use us for your glory. Help us to, to be that uh, that balancing force in this world that says, oh no, there really is a God and he can create all things. And we believe his word. He's spoken it to us. And so bless us, Lord, anoint us. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.